Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Scott Severite from Scotland. Hi, Scott. How are you? I wanted to talk to you about leadership today because I was impressed by the way you approached the leadership of the Agile 20 Reflect conference and the way you brought everybody together. But first, why don't you tell people a bit about you and your background? Sure. Yeah, I started off in manufacturing years and years ago, then went to university, looked at the computer science stuff. I already had a lot of business qualifications, so did the first of a hybrid degree, which was business computing. And, and ever since then, I've always worked in the hybrid space. Three weeks out of uni, the client asked me to be a, the project manager on a project that I had failed four times. <laughs> I always say my career is like a constant white water, like a canoeer. I always seem to get every next client, oh, this is a difficult client, put Scott on it. <laughs> I've done some big things. I've worked with big companies like Concur out of the States. I was like an interim CTO in there. The NHS in the UK, I think it's the second biggest organization in the world from the Chinese army. What were you doing there? The booking system for England and Wales and the PAC system. So PACs are where we take all the images and move it around the country. I did the network for Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. I work for C-Prime. C-Prime is a large US agile company. They're closely tied in with a lot of tooling companies as well. And they do product space stuff. And they're working in the C-Prime space and in the pharma space and the enterprise agile coaching, lead agile coach. We've got about 20 people, a team of coaches actually. And it's always big clients. If, if you look at the agile adoption curve, it was easy for the small ones to adopt agile. It was easy for the technical ones to adopt agile. If you look at that curve, um, we're almost now into the laggards. Oh, hard work. Yeah. So could you just give us a summary of Agile 20 Reflect? So we decided that for the anniversary, we should try and get people together, build some bridges in the community, because we noticed that there'd been a lot of tension. So one of the things I wanted to do on the 20th anniversary was get everyone together. I was conscious of the fact that we'd lost some people. So I knew Mike Beadle, Martin Burns, people like that. And what I wanted to do was also record some interviews and some stories because none of those people that were in that room 20 years ago are, are that young anymore. We also wanted to bring other people in. So when we looked at the sponsors, we said, let's not make this just around about some people that happen to be in a room and let's see who else was around doing things like agility. So Esther Darby and Joanna Rothman were there. And then we pulled some new people in, like the leading Russian. Agilist people from the open space and things really trying to pull together a lot. So the design of the patron group allowed us to set the tone that we were really open to everyone and we were open to everything. We weren't really going to ban anything. We had a lot of internal discussion about this. A festival, like a jazz festival, you can have as many people as you want. As is virtual, you can have as many people as you want. You can have it follow the sun. And then if you record the videos. You've actually got an archive. So that archive's up on YouTube. I wasn't sure what the response was. I genuinely would have been happy with 50 events. 800 events came. And some of those events, several thousand people attended. Um, and then other people who had events on at the time moved their events in. And, and that was nice. So it became like a unifying banner for everyone in the community. And it was like a university freshers fair where everyone's got their stalls. You put your stall out, you go. Kanban's amazing, Kanban's best. Okay. What you don't do is go over to the scrum table and kick it over. <laughs> so I think just getting the conversations going, the talking going, um, and getting all the, the people to come in and share their stories as well. Amazing. Yeah. I thought you were very positive as a leader, very inclusive and quite hands off, which I guess you have to be when there's so many people involved, but 
you really inspired people to get involved. So I wanted you to maybe explain your leadership philosophy. So the first thing is start with a vision and test that vision. So we weren't going to do this hell or high water. We we're going to do this in stages. I use a thing called design thinking and in design thinking, you explore some options, then you pick an option and then you look at ways of delivering it. One of the early fights, and there were many fights. One of the early fights where they just do it, people. It's agile, we'll slice it, we'll do it. And I'm like, no, we need to know what we're doing. We had a consultation document to try and share, co-create the vision. So I think a co-created vision is always going to be stronger than something that I come out with and then launch. And then if someone comes up with a better idea, I might not put it in because we've already launched the vision. So in the co-creation, the, the, the design thinking piece about the exploration is really important. The next is wordly mapping. So actually map out all the elements you need to do and the stuff that's commodities and the stuff that exists, use it. So the reason we managed to do this in months, I think 26,000 people came, they didn't fall over, was that we were using Meetup, we were using all these other systems. So do things, test them, find out, push everything down. The other bit was skeletons. So you can have an exoskeleton that you know, holds things together. Sometimes guardrails are like that, or you can have internal skeleton. So everything that we were doing internally was trying to enable people to build on top of it, like a mammal skeleton. So amplify what you want to see more of, have some enabling constraints that allow people to, to do things. So I think between the enabling constraints and the celebration and the autonomy and the using the existing systems, that's the only way we could have scaled this quite quickly. Now there were lots and lots of arguments. So here's the leadership thing. Different people want to do different things. Different people have different visions. Within the leadership group, if there's too much dysfunction, then some people need to go. Sometimes people need to go from the group because they're holding the group back. They kill the psychological safety. So and one of my jobs was the chief bouncer. Yeah. So I've had some experiences with some of the leaders in the agile community that have been quite negative. There's a few people who are egotistical and very intolerant of any criticisms of their approach. And there's also some people who are quite bullying. So tell us a bit more about these fights and conflicts and how you dealt with them. Did you just immediately turf people out? <laughs> there's some other things you did first. When we first had the Slack group. Some well-known people came in and argued with each other. Everyone coming into this came with their baggage and history and previous fights. So first of all, we had um, a conduct committee. So if anyone's conduct breaks anything, if there's any complaints, the committee handles it. I don't handle it. I, I'm very conscious of my biases. I get angry a lot. So every night I write down what shouldn't I have done yesterday? Who shouldn't I have swore at? So what I was trying to do is minimize me getting angry, me having a reaction to behavior and socialize the kind of the view and the behavior. We had one complaint we upheld. We had one complaint we didn't uphold and we went back to the original person and that person withdrew from the festival. Again, some of these names are quite big and if you say no to them, they're not used to getting no's. But I think the community approach, I think having good governance, we're very established in our governance. We had regular meetings, we had a trustee group. We debated everything. I did delete someone out of the Slack group. You are too toxic. I've thought hard and long about it and I just did it. How does that compare to when you're working with large organizations? So it sounds like in this situation, you had power to arbitrate. And when we're working in large organizations, we don't tend to have that arbitration power. So how would you relate the way you dealt with conflict for the conference versus how you see conflict being managed in large? enterprise organizations you work with? 
my one rule was that nobody could disagree with me if I made a final decision. But the checks and balances were the committees. So most large organizations, HR is just for managing the dysfunction. That's all it's there for. If we had proper functioning groups of people that were working well, we wouldn't need HR. How large organizations, if there's any challenge within the organization, they'll tolerate some of it. And if not, it's an HR issue because they view disruption, they view negativity as a abhorrence. So it's aberrational. And in the workplace, who handles the aberrational stuff? HR. So they're like the bouncers, so they can signal areas of management. You can have a bad manager that refers multiple people to HR and flushes them away and never get agile to land. Yeah, I think of them as the KGB of an organization. I go mafia, consigliere. So in answer to your question, my conduct committee was my HR. I didn't need to use them. And that's because I had clear vision and leadership. I'm interested in your personal journey to leadership because you just said that you have a lot of anger and that wouldn't be something that I'd noticed about you. I've also seen you writing about your journey to leadership and you used to be different. So tell us about that. Yeah, I said I got my first class honours degree, went into IT and I was a terrible manager. There's enough time passed. I think that's about 30 years now. I think I could tell some of the stories without being sued. I was very intolerant and had very little empathy. So empathy is key. If we'd committed something to the client and there was a problem with the team and we hit complexity or something, I would really give them a hard time. I would say, look, we've committed this. We really need to move on it. This is no excuse. And I feel bad. I feel this is opening my heart now. Part of this is if we didn't do some of this, we might not have existed. So like I said, that first project, four people, four times they'd went forward. I was the fourth project manager. There wasn't any tolerance. If we didn't do it, we were out. My methods weren't good. I didn't suggest things. I didn't ask questions. I didn't use curiosity. When I talked earlier about celebrate what you want to see more of. I really focus on the negatives. I really focus on the weaknesses. I even would fall out with the customers. I thought I was straight talking like an Australian. <laughs> and it's part of the reason I got promoted because it was like, ah, oh, Scott always tells it like it is. But I think I was doing some real damage and hurt. I wasn't using non-violent language. What do you think of that? What's your reflection? Straight talking or violent language? What do you think? Australian management is quite diverse, but there is a strain of Australian management, which is very macho, aggressive, hard driving, hostile, controlling, dominating sort of people who talk about kicking heads and taking no prisoners. Ripping heads off. A lot of them get promoted, which is a bit disturbing. <laughs> But if you're going to be like that, you have to be very good at politics because you're going to create a lot of enemies and therefore you have to be skilled at dealing with it. So have you ever seen in the thick of it with a uh, Malcolm Tucker character that Peter Capaldi plays? Yeah. In, in the British parliament, he's a ministerial advisor or something to the prime minister. Yeah. It's a spin doctory type thing, but enforcer, again, the consigliere. People who had worked within the NHS said they stole that character from me. <laughs> uh, you were like that, were you? That's pretty terrible. That's much worse than I ever was. <laughs> <laughs> There's one line that I think he used that I used. <laughs> I think it was something like, what the fuck are you doing? Get the fuck in or get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard that one before. Get on the bus or fuck off. <laughs> yeah, get on the bus or under it. I really hate going into that mode. My father was a very angry man. I've done some therapy on it. 
My theory, Scott, is that management is quite a high pressure job and quite a lot of emotional labor and people fall back into the patterns they've learned from their parents. So they act like their parents when they're a manager and they don't even realize it. And it can take quite a long time, a lot of reflection, a lot of criticism before you start to realize it and realize that you have to change. And I think some people never do. Yeah. And I think that management style and behavior is amplified during our schooling. When I went to school, it was chicken farming. You got to sit down and do what the teacher told you to do. You were monitored. You had no freedom, no creativity. You didn't work as a team. Regardless of our home lives, we were taught in schools to listen to the manager because we were being trained to work in factories. So given that you've started at that place, why aren't you like that anymore? What have you learned? I love learning and reading and I love reading books. There's a couple of big things here, but one thing is external Scott and internal Scott were different. So external Scott would start editing what he did, did some meditation, did a little bit of self-reflection. I think one of the biggest things that, that changed my behavior was I thought I had a calling to religious ministry and spent several years pursuing that and I studied theology and everything else. And it's a lot of reflective time in there, a lot of behavior time. And Church of Scotland wanted me to become a conflict mediator. Honestly, conflict mediation. Sometimes the pastor sister is real. And sometimes you're just not good at that. And I'm like, I really don't think I can do conflict negotiation. And then I realized that I'd been changing. So there's another couple of things here. Age and time, how your brain's wired, your horrible at the start of your career, how you tried to press and get there. I think when you get to our level, we don't have those angst. We don't have those worries. We don't have that stuff. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. Some are, <laughs> maybe we spoke about them in the festival, but I'm fairly relaxed. All anger comes from fear. All anger comes from fear. My father was a very angry man. He was actually a street thug. It's a hard man to go around of kind of street fights. Growing up in that environment was a bit difficult as well, because you never know whether there'd be arguments. If he came back from the pub, you never knew what it was like. So growing up, I had quite a lot of fear. I know this because my therapist still with us. Yeah. So I think the older I get, the less fearful I get. So the less anger I get. What I tend to do now is do some probes in management and leadership styles and things. And then I'll go back and I'll look for patterns. So at my stage in life, everything's a pattern. And, and what I've almost developed over time is a set of activities that will influence and move that person. So if you're a very ambitious person and they've got a bad leadership style, don't go in there and say, your leadership style is rubbish. You go in there and say, I like what you're doing. I remember doing that when I was your age. I found it only got me so far and to get further, I needed to adapt. If you'd like to learn how to adapt, let's talk about it. So, so see that that difference about you've got a problem with your leadership style, the team aren't happy with your leadership style, just to something like I recognize that myself. I had to change to get higher because I know that the motivating drive for that person is getting higher. So that's the kind of thing I do. Yeah. So that sounds like an example of empathy. I also had a very angry father, so I, I know what it's like. And I responded to that by being too controlling when I was a young manager. And also I felt the responsibility was on my shoulders and I had to deliver. And I didn't think that anybody else took any responsibility. And two big realizations for me as I got older was. First of all, you can't control anybody else. They're going to do what they want to do, whether you like it or not. 
So you should just stop trying to control them. You can only persuade them. And then the second thing was that actually I had to share responsibility with everybody around me. And when I did those two things, when I asked people to share responsibility with me and I stopped trying to control them and tried to encourage them, I found that helped a lot. And people did take on the responsibility. And one of the things I really like about Agile is Agile taught me that. That's where I learned that from back in 2004, my first Agile project, and I implemented it, didn't really believe it. And it was so great for me personally. I don't know if that resonates with you, Scott. It does. It does. And I was, I was just thinking about that. You asked me when I changed. A big pivotal crisis point was when I was working at the National Program for IT, which was biggest project ever, hellish, behaviors were terrible, they were behind the curve. I managed to inspire people to deliver, but I took a personal toll because that control thing, the need to control thing was really important. I'll come back to that. It still happens now. I still have to physically remove myself from trying to control much. Now what I've got is very good friends I tend to work with that feel comfortable to tell me when I'm wrong. So every leader needs to have a group of people near them that feel comfortable to tell them when you're wrong. I think it's like Caesar employed someone to walk around and whisper in his ear that he was mortal. I think sometimes as a leader, you can believe your own hype. So I remember falling out with my boss and she was being unreasonable to me and shouting at me. And I turned around to my PA and I said, find me a one week course somewhere. <laughs> so she came back and said, oh, I found the Ashridge leadership course. It's uh... so I went there to get respite from a bad boss. I didn't really know what I was getting into. It was kind of, I was kind of getting away from this bad working environment. I needed a break. And when I landed, the first thing they started doing was asking you, what was your vision for life? Where are you trying to go to? And they assigned a, a small group of people and that group of people you spent the whole week with. And at the end, they did this exercise, which I'd never seen before. So these people that you trust and you've spent lots of time doing stuff and you're really bonded with, put you out of the room and they write down all your good things and all your bad things. And then they come back and they tell you that that is fucking hard because it's fucking honest. My control, my manipulation was all in the negative column. My cooperation, my humor, my fun stuff was all in the other one. And I looked at that negative column and I said, yeah, I'm going to do something about that. I think it changed on that course. The final bit I, I want to call out is two people. So one's BG Hill Jowett from South Africa, who's a good friend of mine. We're working together in C Prime. And last week he did an intervention on me because I wasn't being controlling enough. We got several work stream leads. I was hoping they'd all align and do things. And he's like, you need to start telling them what to do. And you need to take responsibility for things. I was standing back to make the space to allow people to go into it, but I wasn't taking responsibility for them getting into the space. Now, one of the biggest things out of the festival in the last year that had the biggest influence on me, Chris Avery and his responsibility process. I strongly recommend that to every leader. I journal now every day and I've got a section in my journal every day. What did you take responsibility for? This is life changing for me. Honestly, when we're in meetings. And there's a discussion about who's going to set up the meeting. I'll just go, I'll, I'll do it. And that responsibility is such a freedom and it's not control. It's actually owning stuff. What do you think to what I've said there about responsibility and not being too standoffish? 
Yeah, I think it's a balance. You can react to having been someone who took too much responsibility by taking too little. You have to do some self-monitoring and monitoring the circumstances you're in and ask for feedback and say, have I gone too far? Like driving a car, it's best to get lots of little bits of feedback. So I find myself these days checking in with people. Am I doing well? Did I offend you? That sort of thing. So feedback is important, I think. Yeah, great point. Harry Windows was something I discovered again back around about the time of that course, and I've been using it ever since. I, I usually take new teams together and I take them through Jahari Windows and say, this is why we need to know more about what we're doing. Do you want to give us an overview of what Jahari Windows are? Oh, for sure. It's J-O-H-A-R-I. You might think it's some great new Japanese technique. It's not. It's uh, two fellas. One's called Joe and one's called Harry. Hence the Jahari Window. Uh, it's typical Boston matrix, you know, it's the four squares and, and different sections. So top left square is the open space. So that's the thing that Joe knows about Harry and Harry knows about Joe. The horizontal's Joe, the, the vertical's Harry. So if that's open space is what they know about each other. If you go down to the opposite corner, diagonally, that's the place where neither of them know about each other. And on either side, you've got the blind spot. So that's the stuff that Murray might know about me, but I don't know about me. And then there's the other space, stuff I know about Murray and Murray doesn't know about him. Feedback pushes the knowledge in the open space bigger. What we know is high performing teams, people that trust each other, where we're in high trust situations, that open space is quite large. I like to get to a situation where I know lots of things about people and people know lots of things about me. If I act out or if I'm doing something wrong, people feel like if they know me well enough, they know that I'm not right. So they can say, Scott. So that's Jahari Windows. Anytime I pick up a new team, there's two things I take them through. Jahari Windows and the other one is Transaction Analysis by Eric Byrne. And I'm not sure if you've heard about this one. Is this the parent-child relationship thing? Parent-adult-child thing. So we've all got different voices. I think this relates to our fathers, Murray. I think we need a hug after this. There's parental voice, there's adult voice, and then there's, there's this child voice. In each of these voices, I've got positive patterns and negative patterns. We're using adult voice just now. So we've never met before. It's very useful. You ask me for something. I ask you for something. It transacts its flow. The language of business, the language of agile, the language of teams is the adult voice. In the old style of working, there was parent voices. Now parents can be benevolent or they can be critical. Oftentimes the pattern that we see learning is critical parent. So I think when Murray and I talk about our fathers, they were critical parents. I remember my first set of exams that came and they were like seven A's and one C and he looked at it and he went, what happened with the French? So everything is critical. And after a while we can try and be an adult, but what critical parent was really looking for, I, don't, I won't go through all of this, we could look it up as Eric Burr and the games people play, but what people are looking for if they're critical parent voice is compliant voice. It's a compliant child. Have you brushed your teeth? Yes, dad. There we go. You didn't brush your teeth yesterday. Have you done it today? Yes, that. Now, there's different responses, and sometimes there's broken transactions go on. And what we can sometimes see in the workplace is broken transactions. If we see someone giving critical parent, and then the critical parent's not getting what they get, that's when they get HR on people <laughs> to, to reference our earlier conversation. Once you know these techniques and language patterns as well, so you know you've got a CEO that isn't happy. With transactional analysis, you go, all right, I'll give them a compliant child. Sorry about that. Then you can actually get back to the adult to adult discussion. But the other thing about being a parent is it forces the other person to be a child in most cases. Mm. 
Yeah, there's two reactions. One is you can give the parent what they want, or the other one is that you can react against it. So I could say, yeah, Murray, go make me a cup of tea. And you could say, fuck off, make your own cup of tea. Because you're a rebellious child. Now, a lot of the teams we get, and a lot of the teams we work with, and sometimes the leadership teams get us in to work with a dev team that is in rebellious child mode. It's really because businesses take the critical parent voice, text take the rebellious child voice, none of that's productive. Because the only way we can actually work in the business productively is adult to adult. You talked about the dysfunctions of a team before. Do you want to take us through the five dysfunctions of a team? Lancioni is the author. So first off, absence of trust. Leaders and managers role is to try and create a situation and environment of trust. The next one's fear of conflict. Now I see this all the time with suppliers, especially large suppliers who don't want to tell the client things can't get done, who don't want to have hard conversations with the client. So the answer is always yes. And the delivery never happens. If I can't say no, I can't say yes. Let's say I'm working for a large software integrator and leadership won't let me say no, then everything and every commitment I do is never going to happen, which then leads you into lack of commitment. So I can't commit to anything because we're fearing that conflict. And then there's avoidance of accountability. So if something goes wrong, team shrugs their shoulders. That always happens here. Leadership try and distance themselves from making decisions. And then that means inattention and results. Sometimes we can focus too much on putting the agility and we don't actually focus on what's happening. I've also seen areas where the department just wants to grow. They don't really care about the rest of the company because we're a bit siloed and they're not really focused on the outcomes that the whole systems needs. Yeah. So that's the model. That makes a lot of sense. And I've seen organizations where they are avoiding conflict with clients and that rapidly turns into lying, frankly, which turns into avoiding responsibility because I didn't say that and leads to some really bad results, I think. So one of the things I like about C-Prime, where I'm working is honest. So we build honest relationships on fearless communication. So I think the fearless communication is, is going back to clients and giving bad news and giving true opinions. So I've told you about my journal where I'm trying to take responsibility for things. The other thing I'm trying to do is every day I'm trying to be courageous. So I try and have conversations that I wouldn't like to do and I've forced myself to do them. So you do something that annoys me. It's easy for me just to ignore it. It's harder to come back and say that really annoys me and it annoys me because of these reasons. And you can use a non-violent communication style for it. I'm seeing this and that gives me this feeling, but we don't do that. We don't do that because it's difficult. It's hard. Yeah, it is. And the longer you leave it, the worse it gets like everything. And you don't say anything until you have a big explosion and then you're judgmental and horrible and they're not going to receive any of that communication. Yeah. So it's talking about BG. So BG is from South Africa. We had a big explosion in work last week. And that when we broke it down, it's you're acting like a boss and I'm missing my friend, but we had to do it over a meal. He was courageously brave to have that conversation with me. I've done that too. I have got the feedback that I'm too blunt sometimes, but I'd much rather do that than not say anything and get angry or disappointed. Yeah. I think you've got to watch how it comes. I'm a big six foot tall, huge guy. So I've always had to watch how I communicate things. I've thought a lot about radical candor and I'm part of the team that runs the heart of agile Scotland group. And we had the radical candor people in several times. And radical candor is good, but I think the nonviolent communication thing's better. The style for nonviolent communication is observation. So there's a factual start, 
then there's a feeling bit. And I think that the feeling bit is really an example, but it's also, it builds empathy. And then stating what you need and then making the request. And I think sometimes we just make the request and we don't go through that violent communication stuff. Have you guys used that stuff? I have, yes. I learned it from something called the Manager Tools podcast, which teaches people how to be managers very slowly and repetitively. I needed that at one point and I learned about that technique, which they described as their feedback technique. So observation, when you're late to a meeting, I feel annoyed. And the result is that we were waiting for you. Can you do something different next time? It's, it's not judgmental. It's not about the past. It's about the future. Yeah. It opens up a conversation. I found it very helpful. I actually used it with my teenagers and I didn't notice. It just led to good conversations. I do transactional analysis with my kids all the time. You know, when they're acting out, give them benevolent parent and compliment them and you get them back to adult. These techniques are great for families. Really good techniques. Let's talk about the difference between managers and leaders. What is the difference between a manager and a leader? I am lost on this and I'll tell you why. I go into LinkedIn and I'll see lots of people saying there's a huge difference. And I see lots of people saying that there isn't a difference and I'm actually lost. And I'll tell you why I'm lost. I see managers that do leadership. And I see managers that don't do any leadership. I see leaders that do managing. We've got these traits and Tom Peters has a list of manager traits and the leader traits. And I'm not actually through, sure that that's true. One of the books I love is Manager's Coach. It's a great book and it encourages managers to coach. So I'm lost. Tell me, educate me. What do you think, Shane? I think that there is no role of leader and role of manager. There's a bunch of titles and people can behave in different ways in, in that same title. I think there are traits or behaviors where people are natural or learnt leaders or they're natural or learnt managers. For me, managers are people that want to manage the work to be done. They care about the task. They care about when the task is done. They care about who's doing the task, but they're focused on managing the work to be done. Whereas a leader, I would describe as somebody who sets a goal and then gets out of the way and removes as many of the blockers for the teams to achieve those goals as possible. It's often blurred by context because often a leader will be forced to adopt a managing stance with a certain context at a certain time. They will focus on the work to be done, but a good leader would then back out of that stance as soon as they could. So for me, that's the difference between a leader and a manager for the people that I've worked with. I've got one observation. I think everything we do in organizations is really anthropological. I once saw a psychologist talking about uh, the product owner and the scrum master and how it's a great set of roles because it's the kind of roles that we would have had in, in the tribal groups back in the day. So one, one role is always looking out to see what was happening and where the next resources were and where the next food's coming from. And that's like the product owner role. And the other role is looking internally about how's the well-being of the tribe. Are we planting seeds when we need to plant seeds? Are we cleaning the water and boiling the water? Are the kids getting educated? And that's more like Scrum Master. So you've got this internal focus, you've got this external focus. I think there's a kind of leader-manager dynamic in that space between those two roles. 
leaders create the environment for people to deliver and people to be happy and people to you know, sort things out and they remove barriers. Problem I've got, I see managers doing that. So I wonder if we need new words to get away from the leader manager paradigm, because I think it's too confused. And what I often see in the debate is good leaders being compared to bad managers. And I think a lot of the traits that leaders do, good managers do. Yeah, so I have a fixation on shared language. There are leadership behaviors and leadership traits, and there are management behaviors and management traits. And it doesn't matter what your title or your role is, you will move towards one of those because that's naturally or, or where you've been trained to fit. So you will see managers who are leaders because for some reason they have a stupid title called manager, but they show leader behavior. I think teams are systems. So I met Harrison Owen last year. Harrison Owen is like meeting God. If you ever get the chance, meet Harrison Owen, get Harrison Owen on this podcast. He always says teams are systems and the system always gets what the system needs. So if you've got a team that needs a leader, they will end up, however it happens with a leader, no matter what their title is. And if you've got a system that needs a manager, they will end up with someone in that space that's doing the management stuff. The system always gets what the system needs. Okay, so I'm going to disagree with you there. So they're an organism. We try and make in the system. We try to systemize the way the organism works because that's what we want to do as humans. We want to control things. I agree with you that we will always see a leader emerge out of a group of people when leadership is needed. And I'm always amazed mm -hmm, at the teams mm -hmm, I work with mm -hmm. that you can see leaders adopt that leadership stance and then go back into the team and somebody else take the leader stars because they're the right leader for the right time. So that I agree with you that leadership will emerge for the people that have those traits and skills when it's needed. Management is everybody trying to control the system that they're imposing to work a way that may or may not work. I disagree with you on managers. You have a very negative view on managers, Shane, which is probably why you're doing a startup. Who hurt you? Yes, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Uh, precisely. Yeah. Because <laughs> managers are all about chicken farming in the system and that's not how humans achieve. But I wanted to jump in here because I think that you can have somebody who is an organizer and often those people have a title of a manager who is tremendously helpful to the team. They deal with the bureaucracy, they make things happen and they're very supportive. They are a type of servant to the team by organizing things. And I've worked with people like that. And I think it's a type of servant leadership and you can have people who are inspiring and visionary who wreck things around them by being terrible at organizing and making decisions. And for instance, they hire all the wrong people and then don't do anything about it. So for me, the best manager is a good leader and the best leader is a good manager. They should go together. I love that. I think Murray's winning the argument here, Shane. Sorry. Nah, it's two <laughs> one, but I disagree. I agree with Murray that a thought leader is bollocks. That's just somebody that's going off into la la land and shouldn't follow them. Yeah. We had Daniel Mezik on who talked about research into anthropology and he said that groups of monkeys will choose a leader who is generous and emotionally stable because they rally everyone around them and they give something to everybody and they look after people, but also they don't fly off into rages and they're fair basically. And 
there's this idea we have that the chimpanzee or the ape in charge of the troop has to be some dominant alpha male who fights constantly and rips people apart. But what actually happens is that person, that type of ape will come in temporarily, create a lot of disruption, and then everybody else will gang up against them and exclude them or attack them. So it's not a sustainable leadership style. Yeah, there's a great Hidden Brain podcast on this, looking at the Trump presidency. So let's look at the tribe. If the tribe's getting threatened, they'll lean towards totalitarianism. If you've got an organization that's struggling with results or struggling with the future, they will get a leader in who's a bit totalitarian, who's a bit of an egotist, who's out for their bonus. Sometimes it's a way forward. So the British government, when they were planning for nuclear attack, planned actually to give control of the country to psychopaths, people who tested to be sociopaths because they've thought they were the only people that could actually do what needed to happen to get the country through the next bit. Even bombing their own cities to kill people because there wouldn't be enough resources for people. And we see it all the time. This is the rise in them, totalitarianism. And, and this must have been an evolutionary trait though. This must have been a survival technique. And the reason it's still here is it must have benefited us in the past. I agree with you. I think in war conditions of chaos, psychopaths and sociopaths seem to adapt best and they're willing to do whatever it takes to survive so that must be why we still have those genes because the rest of the time they're dreadful people to be around so next observation generous kind ceo starts an agile transformation agile transformations take a while to get there there's a j curve going on so it takes a while to get to the benefits at which point the shareholders and everyone else go no this doesn't look good Time to get new thinking in. Local sociopath comes along. First thing they do is cancel the agile transformation because they just see it's cost. And all the leadership stuff and all of the interaction and all the sharing stuff just goes, doesn't go with their style. Yeah. I've seen agile transformations rolled back when a sociopath took over. I've been there when that's happened. They hate all this agile stuff because they just want to control and dominate and manipulate people. And all the old school waterfall way of working is a great way to do it. But I've been in organizations where we've implemented Agile and it has led to a really big improvement, not only the way people were feeling and the way they were cooperating, but also in the outcomes and the output. And one of these people came in and just didn't like all this talking and just wanted just shut up and do what you're told was basically what they wanted. So. Did they get a better result? No, I think they get a worse result from doing that, but they feel better because they're dominating. So let's talk about evolution. My good friend, Martin Burns and I always said that agile is a generational thing. It's a generational. There are many organizations out there that we don't need to teach agile to because they're doing agile. Those companies are doing well and they're doing better and will continue to do well and better as they get well and better and bigger. More and more people will go to those organizations and learn how to do things, and that will become the new de facto way. And evolution will tend to push the other ways of working out. It'll still happen occasionally. One of the biggest things at the moment is the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Ukraine, hugely agile approach. 
I was listening to a, a military person talking about their style. They've got empowered small groups that are working in patterns that were delivering stuff. Meanwhile, the Russian army comes on a big plan. They actually even had a chart with a plan that had dates where they had had to be and two days in lost it. The people on the ground were following the leaders, didn't understand the people on the ground. The middle management sold all the weapons off in the black market. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians, they've been practicing for this for eight years and their patterns held up. There's no way in the world, if we rolled the dice back in January, anyone would think we'd still be here with Ukraine being independent. So what, where have we got to here? We've got some human patterns that cause bad things to happen. Business is changing over time generationally. Agility is moving more and more into the mainstream and eventually it'll take over. It'll take over because the companies are using it to make more money and to do more and the companies that aren't will shrink. So I'm very optimistic about the future. I agree. I think agile ways of working will become the de facto standard and then at some stage, something better will start to emerge. It'll be an iteration and we'll get a new word and a new set of patterns and a new way of working when the time is right. I'd love to keep talking to you, but I think we're going to have to wrap up. So how about doing summaries? Yeah, I liked the thing so you said right at the beginning, the idea of co-creation is better than publishing and asking for feedback. I love the idea of exoskeleton and internal skeleton. There's a whole movement in the data space that I play in called data mesh. If you look at under the covers, the principles that they talk about and the patterns that they talk about, a combination of agile and data that we've strived for many years. But one of the things it talks about is the idea of federated data governance. If we decentralize teams, how do we keep guardrails in place? And so I really like that, that imagery in my head now of an exoskeleton of the guardrails that we want to make semi-immutable and they will constrain things in a good way and in a bad way. What we really want to focus on is patterns that are our internal skeletons that people can build on top of and the idea that you can be a big fat mammal, even if you've got a small skeleton. I love that visualization. Always lots of books and things to read. I read up on Joe and Hari. I think the way they named it, that's just cool. So it was a, a different uh, conversation than the ones we normally have, I think, and interesting. Murray. A different could mean anything to your listeners. Give me three words on the conversation. It's different in that we tend to spend a lot of our podcast time talking around patterns and how you use them. This one's been a lot more about the softer side of Agile. So for me, that's why it was different. So I really appreciate you talking about how you felt as a leader. When you were young, you had that anger, that need for control, that lack of empathy, which undoubtedly came from your parental models. And once you realized that wasn't working for you or other people, You've explored a lot of things to be a better person and a better leader, which is why I think you were so effective with organizing Agile 20 Reflect. So leadership is quite emotional work because it's about people and your response to people. And there's some words that are quite important to me as a leader, empathy, collaboration, invitation, generosity. These are all important. And then you used a group of patterns, which I think people should go and have a look at. So Chris Avery's responsibility process, you talked about the five dysfunctions of a team, which I've read It's really good, very helpful. And you talked about Johari window and transactional analysis. That's from the seventies, that stuff. 
but it's still good. There's a group of techniques people can read about and learn about, and those are all good. But I think generally you are driving towards trying to be a better person and having better relationships with people, and so am I. And I think that actually leads you to be far more effective. And sometimes you're motivated to do that because of bad past experiences, and that's all right. So I thought a lot of what you said was quite inspiring. I wouldn't have known that you have a lot of anger issues because you don't come out like that. You come out as a generous, positive, supportive, and inspirational person. And that's why people rallied around you for Agile 20 Reflect. Thank you for that. Some things we didn't talk about. When I was at university and doing business computing, I came across soft systems analysis by Checkland. It's not widely known or used. But basically you map the systems and then from it, you come up with an agenda for change. And I've started going out of the gate with that and it's made me hugely successful. So systems thinking is really important. Um, and I've been doing that now for about 35 years. I think the other thing that is, I have huge imposter syndrome. It's been getting better lately. Someone in the festival said they love the way that I assume that I don't know the best thing. So I don't know the best way. Yeah. Humility is important for a good leader. Yeah, but I also think I'm pretty rubbish. I'm trying to inspire my son to take his career forward. And I read my LinkedIn profile to him and he went, I didn't know you did all that. And then I didn't know I did all that either, because although I've done it all, every day I wake up and think I'm a fraud, an angry fraud. Lucky to have a job. But you know what, Scott, you brought a lot of people together to do a lot of good work and helpful to everybody. So you should yeah. pat yourself on the back for that. And it could have gone very different if you were a different person. That's all I'm saying. Probably wouldn't have got off the ground. If you were a controlling, dominating person, you would have had trouble getting a dozen people to get involved. Yeah. I'm just a work in progress, Murray. That's great. We all should be work in progresses. If you're not a work in progress, you're not going anywhere. You're just stuck. The same in the teams we work with. They're never done. They should be always inspecting, experimenting and adapting with the way they work. It's never a done project. Maybe you can introduce us to Harrison Owen. That would be good. Harrison Owen came up with open space. So open space is much older and much bigger than agile. He tells the tale that he had a meeting to organize for, and he wasn't sure what to do. And he was having a martini on his garden in Washington thinking, what am I going to do the next day? And, and he came up with this skeleton you know, of ideas. So instead of me doing a conference tomorrow where I'm telling them what we're talking about, why don't we get everyone to see what they want to talk about? And then instead of me picking which things that we actually do, let's get people to have that marketplace of ideas and then pick the ideas that they want to talk about. And then people can leave and move to different things when they want. So I think sometimes our conferences are a little bit too fixed. So this open space ideas really took off and, and then Harrison's founded a company and he took it around the world and he's you know, South Africa. He's been down there doing the, the truth and reconciliation stuff, the Palestinians and Israelis and peace conferences. He's used this format. I used the format quite a lot before I knew Harrison. So I knew the power of the format. And it's really important to leadership. Whatever happens is the only thing that could have happened. Whoever comes is the only people that could have came. When it happens is the only thing that could have happened. And if you're not getting any value, you can move around. So these simple principles can allow you to have these really powerful projects. And I think that simple principles and the principled approach is really why the festival worked. So we wrote our principles before we worked out what we were doing. Okay, so how can people find you? Oh, LinkedIn. I'm not really looking for a huge following. The, the other thing is I, I have no original thoughts. 
All I do is take the ideas of others and turn them into gold. That's great. All right. Thanks very much for that, Scott. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.